Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're in. We're in. We're in. <laughs> we don't have headphones because... Well, hold on. <laughs> Once again, I don't have headphones because somebody's dumb cat, whom I love more than myself, has chewed two pairs of headphones. She not only chewed through my over-ears, she chewed through my backup pair, those Kayla's pair of earbuds. So, once again, left in the dark. The sound dark. I feel like I'm on an island. <laughs> and I'm in a closet. An audio island. I'm literally, like, straight up just under these clothes. She's under a lot of coats. Maybe I need to I move feel these. like there's a way to fix that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Welcome back to Mystery Team Inc. We are the podcast that doesn't solve mysteries. But we certainly try. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. Wow. That's I the know. first time we've ever done that properly. I thought I would give you that. Thank you. <laughs> I needed that win. <laughs> It was Since I'm currently in the middle of a an online <laughs> battle, firestorm. Oh, it's okay, guys. It's just men. Um, it's just dumb men complaining that we're ruining Christmas. Perhaps baby, it's cold outside isn't problematic. <laughs> <laughs> um, the good news is you are going to enjoy. I'm very excited. This ceremonial quacking, quack quack. This episode of Mystery Team Inc. is brought to you by Tecate, the smooth taste of an eagle? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is Tecate's ta- tagline, logline? Hecho en México since 1944. I don't think Tecate has a slogan. I don't think it does. I don't think at the point of being Tecate you need a slogan. Yeah. They don't really even advertise. Tecate, the PBR of Mexico. <laughs> El PBR de México. <laughs> Oh, no, their slogan is cervezas con character. All right. I mean, yeah. Okay, guys. False, but okay. Sure, in turn. Okay. This is the story, the mystery, of the Battle of Los Angeles. (gasps) Uh, I'm going to set the scene for you with this radio broadcast from 1941. You may recognize it. Oh, I'm so excited. Yesterday... December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. So... If you rec- I don't know if you recognize that. Um, it's the beginning of the speech in which FDR called for a declaration of war. Because it's the speech from two days after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I figured. Uh, or the day after Pearl Harbor. So. The transatlantic accent is strong. <laughs> it's strong. Um, on December 9th, 1941, 
Uh, okay, so that was, so Pearl Harbor was December 7th of 1941. So on December uh, 9th of 1941, reports of approaching aircraft sent New York into a panic. The stock market fell and soldiers manned anti-aircraft guns on the rooftops. So Pearl Harbor was the first time that the U.S., like that land belonging to the U.S. had been attacked. Mm-hmm. February 23rd, 1942, a Japanese submarine surfaced off the coast of Santa Barbara and hurled a dozen artillery shells at an oil field and refinery Whoa. in Santa Barbara. There were no casualties, but tensions soared because this was the first bombing of the U.S. mainland of World War II. Mm-hmm. And this is where our story begins. Yes. The evening of February 24th, 1942, naval intelligence instructed units along the West Coast to prepare for an attack by Japan sometime within the next 10 hours. All was quiet on the Western Front. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until shortly after 2 a.m. on February 25th, when military radar picked up something 120 miles off the coast of California on course for Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. At 2.21 a.m., air raid sirens sounded and the city of Los Angeles officially put into effect a citywide blackout. My brain just went, I can't believe my parents have never told me about this. <laughs> like they were like alive. Like they were alive. <laughs> Uh, our grandparents were definitely alive, and mine were here. Yeah, mine were, too. I can't believe they haven't told me about this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask them about it. Although my grandma has not been responding to my text message. Oh, whoa, Graham. Which is, hmm, a low. <laughs> You've hit a new low, and you can't even get a text back from your grandma. I can't even get a text back from Nana. Um... So, yeah, they did put into effect a citywide blackout. And it's funny because I was talking to you about this the other day, about the neon tour. Yes. Um, yeah, when you go on the neon tour, they point out all the things that got shut down just, like, in World War II in general for, like, the purposes of not, like, making an obvious, um, like, target for aircraft. Oh, so they were trying to be like, nobody's here, yeah. but it was also one of the most populated cities. Yes. But they, on, guys. Well, this is what they did in, like, England during the Blitz is they're, like, blackout because it's harder to see from the air. Yeah, but it's different when it's Los Angeles. Not really at that time. Really? I mean, they knew where they were, but they, if, they, if all the lights were out, it's much harder to tell sort of, like, where things are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just feel like maybe you could drop a bomb anywhere within the county and obliterate the whole county. Oh, that's for sure. It's not like <laughs> it's not like a small town in England where it's like a population of 3000 and they can be like there's no 12 homes here, you know? <laughs> like people know where Los Angeles is. But that's is. the difference is that like London is very concentrated and like Los Angeles is super sp- spread out. Like if you hit Long Beach by accident, it's really different than anything. Then hitting, it's like... fine. No, it's just <laughs> different. <laughs> I mean, no, okay. I mean like no bad feelings toward Long Beach, but like Well, the thing too is that it wasn't <clears throat> It wasn't, uh, at the time, necessarily meant to be, like, a terroristic act. A lot of the time, air raids like that were intended to uh, impact munitions and oh, artillery, okay. or, or artillery organizations, which is why they, like, bomb oil refineries and stuff, because it's about taking out our weapons systems. That's, like, a way better way to conduct war than... World War Two. <laughs> I almost said, World War II had it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't. I don't think that. Um, okay. So, at 2.21 a.m., air raid sirens sounded, and the city of Los Angeles officially put into effect a citywide blackout. Troops manned anti-aircraft guns and swept the skies with anti-aircraft spotlights, which I have a picture of. Yes. And just after 3 a.m., troops in Santa Monica... 
great. Is that the weirdest sentence you've ever heard? Troops in Santa Monica? Yeah. Troops it's in- like, what, your improv troops? <laughs> <laughs> they were yeah. like, yes, and not here. <laughs> they were like, yes, and Nazis. Um, <laughs> troops on the west side. <laughs> Open fire. This is a quote from the Los Angeles Times. Powerful searchlights from countless stations stabbed the sky with brilliant probing fingers, while anti-aircraft batteries dotted the heavens with beautiful, if sinister, orange bursts of shrapnel. I have a question. Mm-hmm. If we were going into full blackout, mm-hmm. why would they then use high-powered the searchlights? Spotlights? Yeah. If this is a World War II thing, it's so that they can spot the aircraft and gun them down. Okay. I mean, because you can't look directly in the spotlight. Yeah, but you can see where a spotlight is. Yeah, but right, sure. I think I would be a terrible general. (laughs) Is what we're. I think we're learning that you have no idea how (laughs) air raids work. None. Okay. I've watched a lot of like great spooky episodes of British sci-fi shows about air raids. Uh huh. But. Not helping you here? It's not helping me here. <laughs> I could tell you what to do if a small child in a mask came up to you and just repeated the same phrase over and over. <laughs> but my brain's like, why are you using spotlights? So. That's fair. Don't put me in charge. Copy. Um, the, barrage la- uh, the barrage continued for over an hour. By the time the troops ceased fire, they had blasted over 1,400 rounds of ammunition into the sky. I was on. I was working on the roof while writing this, and at this point, a low-flying plane <laughs> flew overhead, and Great. <laughs> I was shooketh. People had defied the blackout and rushed out to the streets, watching the explosions in the sky like it was the 4th of July. There were reports of swaths of enemy aircraft flying overhead, claims of seeing blimps and balloons moving slowly over the area, and even reports of a downed enemy plane crashing into the street. Where? Somewhere in Los Angeles. As the sun rose over Los Angeles, the destruction was clear. Shrapnel had torn through buildings, and at least five deaths had occurred, as well as several injuries. The deaths, however, had occurred from car crashes in the blackout, and one from a heart attack. God damn it. From a podcast called Historical Blindness, where I got a lot of this information. Most injuries were the same. Clumsy accidents during the blackout. Air raid wardens falling off roofs. Policemen breaking the glass of bright storefronts to extinguish the lights. Radio announcers running smack into buildings in their excitement. Oh my god, we're a city of idiots. I know. The military released a statement saying, Although reports were conflicting and every effort is being made to ascertain the facts, it is clear that no bombs were dropped and no planes were shot down. They didn't shoot down any planes? What happened next was the kind of shit you would see from our current administration. The Navy dismissed the incident as a result of jittery nerves and paranoia, while the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, insisted that at least 15 planes had flown overhead. He postulated that they may have been uh, commercial aircraft of enemy origin on a reconnaissance mission, or perhaps sent to instill fear in the public. Hold on. So one person said nothing happened, Mm -hmm. and then one was like, we were confused by planes. The Navy was like, nothing happened. And then the military was like, there were planes. (laughs) (laughs) No, you guys, there, there were, were planes. planes. Don't worry, I'm getting to this, because you're you're already picking up on what's going on here. Oh my god. Um, the Japanese denied flying any aircraft over Los Angeles during World War II, and that claim is made credible by the fact that they took ownership of the attack on Pearl Harbor and the shelling of the oil refi- refinery in Santa Barbara, so there's really no reason for them to deny flying reconnaissance planes. Yeah, and also, had. how funny for them to be like, we flew two planes over you and people walked off roofs. Right. They were like, we didn't do that. 
Um, so, what had been spotted in the sky by the troops in Santa Monica? And what did all the civilians see? Well, if you ask our good friends at MUFON, the answer is fucking aliens. Well, yeah, if you ask MUFON what it was, it's definitely <laughs> aliens. It's always aliens. You could be like, hey, MUFON, what am I? And they'd be like, aliens. <laughs> not a reliable narrator, MUFONs. In 1983, the Office of Air Force History outlined the events of the LA Air Raid and noted that meteorolo- meteorological balloons had been released prior to the barrage to help determine wind conditions. Mm, it's always a fucking balloon. Their lights and silver color could have been what was first... What first triggered the alerts? Once the shooting began, the disorienting combination of searchlights, smoke, and anti-aircraft flak might have led gunners to believe they were firing on enemy planes, even though none were actually present. Well, if you're into UFOs, you know that a weather balloon is definitely always a UFO. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1983, Jamie Shondera, a TV producer, was sent an anonymous roll of 35mm film that included footage of a top-secret document. He handed the film over to his good friends, Bill Moore and Stanton Friedman. And do you know what that was? It was the executive order signed by President Truman, now known as Majestic 12. Oh my god. The documents purported to reveal a secret committee of 12 supposedly authorized by United States President Harry S. Truman in 1952 and explain how the crash of an alien spacecraft at Roswell in 1947 had been concealed and how the recovered alien technology could be exploited and how the United States should engage with extraterrestrial life in the future. For those of you that don't know, that's what Majestic 12 is. (laughs) It's For very those of famous you with in lives the UFO and yeah. significant others and <laughs> Goals, real jobs, dreams, <laughs> purpose. <laughs> uh, if you listen to our episodes on the Gulf Breeze sightings, then you will remember Philip Class. Hold on, real quick. I don't think those are up anymore. They're not. You have to join the. You have to become a Patreon member to have access to the old episodes. Ooh, that was very tricky of us. So, become a Patreon member, and you can get the Gulf Breeze episodes yeah. are so great. Uh-huh. If you're from Sweden and you've been with us since the beginning, <laughs> then you listen to the Gulf Breeze episodes. <laughs> hello. And, and, hello. And you will remember Philip Class, who is the ultimate killjoy of the UFO community. <laughs> That's such a good way to describe him. And he comes into this story yes. because he, of course, debunked all the Majestic 12 documents and proved that they were faked. And that the photos had been altered from this event. Um, things like uh, the file would have been like a copy, but the file, like this paper, was like had been folded and had typewriter imprints. So it was obviously an original. And like the dates on it were not done in like traditional military style date sequence. They mm-hmm. were done by like similar to the um, dates in other examples of this guy's work. So. Oh. So, the UFO community is convinced that it was US, UFOs. Yeah, um, they always are. The rest of us are pretty much convinced that it was just, like, paranoia and fear-mongering. Incompetence. And incompetence. And, um... I have a question. hmm So, you said that there was, like, a warning mm-hmm. to expect mm-hmm. Japanese attack. Yes. Who gave that warning and to whom... The na- mm. naval intelligence units were the ones that said, prepare for an attack. Okay. Um, do you have skeptical. another question? Uh, that was my main one. Okay. So, yeah, we're pretty convinced that it was jittery nerves, paranoia, uh, and that the government just fucked up. <laughs> the military fucked up, and they tried to cover it up. 
But a cover-up looks like... A cover-up is a cover-up is a cover-up to the UFO community. So what they were actually covering yeah. up is... Yeah. And then we found out later that, um, for example, like, they did release weather balloons, but it was in order to determine the conditions. Are we sure they released weather, bo- mm-hmm. weather balloons? Our government did. On the night? Like, yeah, within that time period. Our government released weather balloons to determine the conditions of the weather in order to, like, prepare appropriately in case there was, like, an attack from the air. Okay, so let me get this timeline straight really quickly. It was Santa Barbara attack. Mm -hmm. How, How many days after Santa Barbara was the L.A. blackout? Santa Barbara was on February 23rd. The blackout was on the 24th. So are they trying to tell us (laughs) (laughs) that Santa Barbara was attacked and then they immediately released weather balloons just in case? I don't know that it was like the same blackout. I don't know that it was like the same day, but it was why else would they release weather balloons to? I don't know. And when the Santa Monica troops opened fire, they said there were reports that it was it looked like a balloon with a red flare. I'm starting to believe so, it was aliens. It could. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why. Here's why. Yes. Because I don't believe... That our government would release weather balloons and then shoot them down. And then shoot them down. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's stupid to have, like, a definite attack. Yeah. And then very close to that attack be like, watch out, we're doing a full blackout because of a possible air raid. And But, like know that you released weather balloons and not even recently consider enough? that that could be part of it there's like maybe well, the i'm is, just the the blip on the like the thing on the radar that they saw disappeared and didn't come back what remember how like all this was started by something 120 miles off the coast that they saw on the radar that was oh, moving toward okay. la so they saw something on the radar and they were like, okay, everyone man your stations. And then it disappeared off the radar, never came back. But then as soon as the troops saw something in the sky, we don't know what, they started firing, which is another reason that the UFO community thinks that it was UFOs. Because they think that that's what the blip on the radar was. I'm just so... I mean, it's all ridiculous. Yeah. Angry. <laughs> um, Yes. The Battle of Los Angeles was probably just what happens when tensions are high and everyone's super paranoid. And I have to make an important point about this that's not funny, which is that Pearl Harbor, the shelling of the oil refinery in Santa Barbara, and the Battle of Los Angeles, these events were inciting incidents for the internment of Japanese Americans in concentration camps during World War II in California, and Japanese gardeners were literally arrested after the Battle of L.A. because the government thought they had been quote-unquote signaling the imaginary planes. Oh, with their petunias? So, I exactly. So, I also just wanted to take this moment to make a political statement, but the fear-mongering, and especially the kind that we're experiencing now, has very real consequences. It costs people their lives. It leads to xenophobia, racism, and nationalism. And genocides in concentration camps don't just come out of nowhere. Like, this kind of intentional spreading of misinformation and fear is terroristic. And, like, we can laugh about UFOs over L.A. because the whole thing seems ridiculous. 
but it's an important it's important to remember that this is not unlike what our country's going through right now. Yeah. Like when people refer to like refugees seeking asylum as like mm-hmm. migrant caravans or like animals. When we det- yeah, or animals when we detain or you know rapists and when we detain people at the border and like write numbers on their arms. Mm-hmm. And did you see that they're now playing with the idea of charging them fees to yeah. apply for asylum? And like putting kids in cages and like separating them from their parents. Like, that is not unlike... Right. So... Yeah. Is it possible that the, quote, Battle of Los Angeles was... A false flag? A false flag, exactly. That's what I was getting to. Um, There are people now who think that the Battle of Los Angeles was a false flag, similar to... It sounds like it, because if you have Pearl Harbor and then, like, like whatever, however many... Two months of dead air... Mm -hmm. Where you can either, like, back down and be seen as a, quote, pussy or whatever. Right. And then the Santa Barbara attack. Go to war. The best way to, like, incite people into being angry at this group of people is to do something like this. Yeah. Because I'm sure they wanted to intern Japanese people after Pearl Harbor to begin with. Yeah. And they needed something else. So the thing is that after Pearl Harbor, they, uh, FDR signed the... Um, executive order that allowed the internment, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until after the shelling of the oil refinery in Santa Barbara and this incident that they that it really like picked up steam, where they really started interning Japanese yeah, Americans. You need an inciting incident, mm-hmm. and that's what this fucking caravan was supposed to be for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, like, as I was researching this, I just, you know, it can't go without saying that, like, mm-hmm. all of this was. Like, it's very funny, and, like, it is funny to be like, oh, it was the 40s, and, like, people thought it was aliens, but, like, people didn't think it was aliens back then. That's, like, a 1980s theory. They thought it was Japanese. That was, yeah, that was raised, like, by the guys who, like, peddled the Majestic 12 theory about Roswell, Um, but it really was just about, like, inciting fear of the Japanese and convincing people that the war was coming to the West Coast and that we were in danger and that we had to intern Japanese people in order to protect ourselves. And the West Coast is kind of always the last front of Mm -hmm. the war that you need to convince that, like, others are bad. Yeah. Even now. It's very true. It's very true. Because of its sort of, like, liberal leanings, it's like, Mm -hmm. it is strategically, like... Yeah, like Los Angeles and New York. And keep in mind that, like, right before that, New York had been, had gunners on the rooftops, had been convinced that they were. Yeah, that's true. Ugh. So it is, like, yeah. It's so fucking gross. I know. It is really (laughs) gross. I just felt like it was important to talk about that. It is. I thought about that um, when you first started telling the story. I was like, "Mm, internment camps and... Battle of Los Angeles, (laughs) i.e., Interning Japanese people in World War II in California. Yeah. So that is the mystery of the Battle of Los Angeles. We may have solved it. I think we did. I think the answer is some rich white people in power wanted to persecute another race. Yeah, I think it was a I think it was a combination of persecution, uh, incompetency, bad communication, mm-hmm. paranoia. Um, and again, like just in sort of, like, a broader sense, like, the the fear-mongering and, and being so on edge, like, as a country, leads to things like shooting at the sky randomly. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because everyone was so on edge that as soon as, like, something popped into their vision, they just started firing at it. Like, the order was yeah. given, and it was just 
executed. And it's like such chaos and everything is so unknown. And when you have, yeah, when you're given an enemy mm-hmm. by people you think you can trust, Quote, it's unquote. easy yeah. to attack them without thinking about it. Right. Ugh. Come on, guys. Do better. Be best. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good one. Thank you. I can't believe we didn't know that. I know. Me How'd either. you find that? Um, <clears throat> I was, I found a podcast that talked about the princess in the tower, which I, as, as you know, I still really want to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. We love the princess in the yeah. tower. I really, oh, which I also, I re- realized that I, I think I incorrectly claimed that it was James the first that did that. It's Richard the third. I don't know. On the, like two episodes ago when we talked about it, I was like, yeah, James did that shit, but it wasn't James. <laughs> that is a Jacobean thing to do because James was like a very kind of guy, mm-hmm. but it was Richard the Third, um, but I still want to do that. Anyway, point is, I found a podcast who I I'll give a shout out to one more time. Um, it's called Historical Blindness, and they didn't they did a two parter on Princes in the Tower about the War of the Roses, and I was listening to that episode, and I like scrolled down, and it was like there was a, an episode about this, and I was like, oh, I want to mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. I love that. All right, shall we take a break? A break. The News of the World, Wednesday, February 25th. And now for news of our own West Coast, we take you to Los Angeles and the report of Byron Palmer. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles, far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. U.S. Army planes quickly... Okay, we're back from our break. We're back. Are you ready? I think so. I've chosen to tell you about Stonehenge. <laughs> That's so original. Listen. There I are... can't believe you're doing Stonehenge. Today I was like, what's the genre? Like, what's the nature of the mystery? And she was like, historical landmark? Question mark? Like, well, I don't know why there was a question mark, because obviously <laughs> it is one. And I was like, Bermuda, Roanoke? Bermuda Triangle? She was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't those. Stonehenge? Stonehenge. <laughs> Great. Here's why I wanted to do Stonehenge. Because there's new discoveries coming out. No. Listen, I swear to God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you'll see. Like, as recent as 2018, there's new, like, real science that's not dumb conspiracy theories that is really interesting. There's also, I found, some very silly conspiracy theories. So, for those of you who don't know. Stonehenge is a prehistoric monument. It's in Wiltshire, England. 
It consists of a ring of standing stones with each stone around 13 feet high, 7 feet wide, and weighing around 25 tons. You know that now I'm going to have to post the pictures of me at Stonehenge for this episode. That's fine. (laughs) They're not Um, cute. (laughs) That's better. So, the construction of Stonehenge was from around 3000 BC until 1600 BC, they think. And it evolved in a bunch of construction phases. So, um, first, Neolithic Britons used primitive tools possibly made from deer antlers to dig that massive circular ditch and bank, which makes it a henge, on the Salisbury Plain. Um, They found these deep pits dating back to then that are called the Aubrey Holes because they were discovered by John Aubrey in the 17th century. Um, their it thoughts... sounds like the file that high school boys had, <laughs> where they kept all like the nudes oh, of no. popular girls. That's so gross. You know, the Aubrey holes. The Aubrey holes. Um, they're said to have held a ring of timber posts, but they're also said to have held the blue stone, which is like the main stone of Stonehenge. Fun fact. Foot fact. <laughs> Foot fact. Um, in 2013, a team of archaeologists led by Mike Parker Pearson, who we will hear about later, excavated more than 50,000 cremated bones of 63 individuals. They had originally been buried individually in the Aubrey Holes. And then some asshole named William Hawley in 1920 dug them up and was like, these don't matter, and then put them all in one hole and buried them again. What? Yeah. Ugh, no. Mm-hmm. So then, several hundred years later, it's, it's always thought, men. It's always some fucking white men poking their noses in holes where they have no right being. <laughs> um, so then, several hundred years later... They brought 80 non-indigenous blue stones, which are the famous stones, 43 of which are still there, into the standing positions, and they either put them in a horseshoe or a circle. We don't know. And then during the third phase of construction, which took place around 2000 BC, sandstone slabs were arranged into an outer ring, or maybe a crescent, we don't know. And those were assembled into those iconic Stonehenge Mm -hmm. three-piece structures Mm -hmm. that are called trilithons. Radiocarbon dating suggests that the work continued until about 1600 BC, and the bluestones in particular were repositioned a bunch of times. We don't know why. Um, The sandstone slabs... That one's a little crooked. That one's like... Can we move that one just like two feet to the left? It's two centimeters... Because it's Britain. If so someone was doing, like, archaeology on your apartment and they saw all of, like, the nail holes from when we tried to hang that oh my God. coat rack, they'd be like, we don't know why, but they rearranged this structure several times. It may have been for religious reasons or healing purposes. Smash cut to us, like, it's crooked. It's crooked. Raise your side a little more. No, <laughs> this is not how this works. The whole thing is broken. So... The sandstone slabs of the outer ring are from local quarries, and the blue stones from the inner ring come from the Priscelli Hills in Wales, which is 200 miles from Stonehenge. 
Right. So one of the issues with Stonehenge is that the rocks weigh like 25 tons, which is like mm-hmm. 50,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And they're like, how did they get them there? That was Maddie. <laughs> they're like, care. how did they get them there? Yes. So Are we going to one... talk about that? Yeah. Okay, I'm just answering. It's Stonehenge. Okay. One long-standing theory is that they built sleds and tree trunk rollers, and they just, like, rolled the stones 200 miles on mm-hmm. sleds. This is, like, major scientific theory, mm-hmm. is that they rolled them on sleds. Mm-hmm. Then they transferred them onto rafts and floated them along the Welsh coast, and then up the River Avon to Mm -hmm. the plain. Um, A recent hypothesis says that they transported the bluestones using supersized wicker baskets. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Supersized wicker baskets? That is the only information I can find on that. And I think this is from an article from the History Channel. And they were like supersized wicker baskets, and then that was the end of it. The History Channel also made Ancient Aliens, so <laughs> if they're suggesting that there are supersized grandmas out there <laughs> weaving supersized wicker baskets, then I, I know have is to the say. wicker big or is like the, <laughs> the weave just really extensive? Right, we don't know. And then there's a theory that the stones were glacial erratics which means that because of like glacial movement they started they were to move the when they were moved but there's no evidence of glacial movement anywhere in southern central england but a lot of people think that ever like even ice age status not in that like a reasonable period of time okay i've divided this into two categories there's the science who and why, and then and there's the, the not tiny science. squirrel that was yes. looking for an acorn that moved the rocks. Exactly. During the so, age. here are some science who's. John Aubrey of the Aubrey Holes decided outright that it was the Druids. Mm-hmm. The Celtic society that spawned the Druid priesthood came into being only after the year of 300 BC. And then once they radiocarbon dated Stonehenge, they were like, "Yeah, probably not. No way." Also, the Druids are that would be that would be like like if like a million years from now, someone was like, "We found this piece called Moonlight Sonata. Who wrote it?" And someone was like, "Abba." (laughs) There's this band called Abba, (laughs) and we think that they wrote exactly. Um, a less funny reason that it's not the Druids, is that they thought the Druids used it for sacrifices, but they performed the majority of their rituals in the woods or the mountains because they're, like, earth-based. Nature. Yeah, nature. Yeah, and Stonehenge is in, like, an open The field. middle of nothing, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's no way. But, funnily enough, modern Druids with, like, huge quotation marks... Yeah. They do. They go there every year. Go there. And this is where the song comes in. Oh, I'm so excited. I found a song, because when I was researching, I just put in Stonehenge, and it suggested song. And I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is a song called Stonehenge in, what is that fucking movie that's a parody of rock bands? 
Spinal Tap. Yes. There is, is a, tap. there is a Spinal Tap song called Stonehenge, but there is also a song <laughs> called Stonehenge Freedom Song. Mm-mm. It is written by a modern-day druid. Sorry, I just is, looked at it when it was 119. Go ahead. And it is... You can't. Don't like that. <laughs> you can't 119. Stonehenge Freedom Song is written by a modern-day druid who is angry because he wants Stonehenge to be open access all the time. I have and, questions, and I'm going to hold them back. No, you can ask. Uh... <sighs> <laughs> What is wrong with everyone? <laughs> I don't. That's the one answer I don't have. Okay, go on. So, <laughs> I'm going to make you listen to this song. I can't wait. And then your life will be changed forever. And it's a real gem. You took away the festivals. Five Francis was one. We had to leave at the break of the day. Now you're stealing our rights away. It goes on. It goes on and on and on. What is selling sacred drinks in your own name a reference to? I think it's just like... I've been to Stonehenge. They don't have like Stonehenge Slurpees or anything. Then I have no idea because I've never been there. So I don't have an answer to what their sacred drinks are. But he's mad because they're not allowed to take their own alcohol in. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. That's exactly what it is because they probably have like a wine thing. Yeah. So that's great because... For every reason. For every reason. And I just love that they're like, our druid ancestors, blah, 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 let us bring in our alcohol, when it's like clearly been debunked that it was the druids to begin with. It wasn't ever the druids, It wasn't ever. A lot of modern historians and archaeologists now agree that several distinct tribes of people contributed to it. Um, And each one did a different phase of construction, and they found bones and tools and artifacts on the site that support the different timelines. Um, so the first stage was Neolithic agrarians, who were likely indigenous to the British Isles. Later, groups with advanced tools and a more communal way of life. We're not really sure where from, but probably from local areas. And then some suggested that they were immigrants from the European continent, but a lot of them think they were native. And they were, like, descended from the original builders. So, here are some whys. A lot of the why theories are based on the celestial influence that the site has. Mm-hmm. And because of the alignments to the sun and moon, they think that it is evidence of rituals by Neolithic groups. Um, the Trilithon that we were talking about earlier... Um, and the horseshoe arrangement, the heel stone and the embanked avenue, which like sticks out from Stonehenge, are aligned to the summer and the winter solstice. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Some people think it's it was an observatory. In the 1960s, the astronomer Gerald Hawkins suggested that the cluster of megalithic stones operated as an astronomical calendar mm-hmm. with different points corresponding to astrological phenomena such as solstices, equinoxes, and eclipses. Critics of that theory say that the builders probably lacked the knowledge necessary to predict such events, or in, like, a desperate bid to debunk him, they were like, the cloud cover is too heavy. In England, mm-hmm. they're like, it's too... It, There's I mean, too many clouds for them to know. Right. 
I mean, which is okay. But also, like the Mayans had calendars like that, and the pyramids happened. But and, what like... was their cloud cover? <laughs> you know, the Mayans were in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> That's tree cover. Tree cover. <laughs> the forest canopy. So, people also think that it was a healing site because um, there were signs of illness and injury in the human remains that were unearthed at Stonehenge. Oh, mm-hmm. and it made a group of British archaeologists. It was a think hospital. That it was a place of place of healing, quote unquote. It was a spiritual hospital. Mm-hmm. But they say that their theory is based on the fact that bluestones have like purported healing qualities. Mm-hmm. And then when I started researching bluestone healing qualities, Mm-mm. another song. <laughs> <laughs> everything that I found was like the bluestone helps you connect to your druid ancestors. No. Or it was, like, connected to other theories that I'll tell you about later that are, like, obviously not true. So the theory that it was a healing center doesn't make sense to me because all of the healing properties of bluestone are based on debunked theories of Stonehenge. But could it have been a healing center for other reasons besides the bluestones? Like, could it have been, like, a celestial healing? Do you know what I mean? Like, could it have been a place that people brought people who needed healing just to do, like, rituals? Yeah. But it's not because of bluestone. No, 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 no. I don't think it yeah. is either. I mean, we have no way of knowing if that theory is true, but it makes way more sense that people would go there because it was like a monument sure. for healing than because of the stones that are... Right. Another theory is that it was a holy site, which is pretty widely accepted in a way. Like, it, it makes sense that you would spend all that time building something in concentric circles for a religious mm-hmm. purpose. And then I found Mike Parker Pearson, who I told you about earlier. Um, he claims that Stonehenge was linked by the river Avon with another ceremonial site at Durrington Walls because they're both circular. Durrington Walls is like a set, like a Neolithic settlement that they found, and there's basically nothing left because it was all wood, but they found Stonehenge-like circles there, and they mm. also found a lot of remains of homes. So he thinks that the two circles of Durrington and Stonehenge, because one was like temporary because it was made of wood, and one is permanent because it was made of stone represent the domains of the living and the dead. No. This project is funded by a university. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have so many issues with this. I know. They didn't build one out of wood because they knew it would go away. (laughs) It wasn't burning, man. Like, what are you talking about? I don't know. This is funded by Sheffield University. Like, a real university is funding. This would be like if people found Burning Man. <laughs> and they were like, this one they were like, yeah. is an homage to the living. Right. And what's the closest city to Burning Man? <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> and Vegas is a monument to the The stratosphere dead. is a monument to the dead. Um, Caesar's Palace <laughs> is a monument to the dead. Because Caesar... Because Caesar. Caesar Cipher. Caesar was a Julius. Orange Julius. Oranges are round. Illuminati. Stonehenge. Stonehenge. <laughs> Qui bono. <laughs> Qui bono. Mike Parker Pearson bonus. Mm-hmm. So he said, quote, 
Stonehenge isn't a monument in isolation. It is actually one of a pair. One in stone, one in timber. No. Shut the fuck up. Timber's not the opposite of stone. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's not like one of stone and one of air. It's just like... Just like one fell apart because it was... It's like the fucking Three Little Pigs. I'm over this, man. Move on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you, next. Uh, Okay, so... The the main thing that people agree on with Stonehenge is obviously that it was a burial site. So... This is exciting because I found out that in 2018, a team of archaeologists led by a man named Christoph Snick figured out that bones that are cremated even above 1,000 degrees Celsius retain their strontium isotope composition. So you can test for them. Mm -hmm. So because strontium is a heavy metal, um, it... It doesn't get destroyed by the heat, and instead it gets, like, sealed into the fragments of bone. Cool. So, from that, you can see, like, the average food even eaten over the last decade. What? hmm And you can also see, compared to, like, the geological strontium nonsense that's in the earth. The ground, yeah. So, they were like, hey, we can now analyze the cremated remains of Stonehenge that we all thought were useless. So they took 25 people who were cremated at the site, and they found that at least 10 of those people's remains showed that they were not living in Stonehenge or near Stonehenge when they died. Mm -hmm. So they were brought there from far away. Yeah, they either moved there or they were brought there. Mm -hmm. So Pilgrimage. The best part about it is that not only did they not live in Stonehenge when they died, they, in the last 10 years of their lives, they were living in Wales, where the the blue blue stone originated. (gasps) Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were these the people that brought the blue stones? We don't know. Okay. We know also from this that the... I never wanted to care about Stonehenge. <laughs> You're welcome. Now I care about it. It's super fucking cool, the shit these people did. I cared about it for a while, and then I stopped caring about it because I thought I'd never know, and yeah, now but I now feel like there's... we're going to know, and I care. Kristoff is doing some good work. Now I have to go back to Stonehenge and watch more ancient aliens. Ugh. It's just a lot. It's such a hard life. <laughs> so they also learned from the Strontium that there were different styles of cremation. So the bodies that had lived near Stonehenge in the last 10 years of their lives were cremated using probably a pyre built with wood that was grown in an open setting like the Salisbury Plains where Stonehenge was. The other people were cremated with wood that came from dense woodlands exactly like there is in Wales. One of the dead, one of the living, (laughs) one of stone, (laughs) one one of of timber. timber. (laughs) So Um, they were burned with wood from their own, the place they were from. Possibly. Or, so, in the 1920s, that asshole who decided the bones Mm -hmm. didn't matter, he noted that some of the cremated remains in the Aubrey holes were stored in leather bags. So it's possible that those cremated remains were brought from Wales with the and fucking then blue stone spread at, and then buried at Stonehenge. Uh-huh. So obviously, spread, obviously this has 
a lot of, like, archaeological and anthropological significance because it means that, like, people weren't just, like, going to Wales and bringing stones over. They were clearly in communication with people from Wales. Yeah. So that's exciting. That is exciting. Um, that's the, all the science. No, I, I like have, the science. I know, but now I have non-science for Yay, you. Yay, conspiracies. So. <clears throat> Conspiracy time. <laughs> we should make a little sound yeah, Play bite. that every time it's <laughs> Conspiracy time. Because I always time. have science and non-science. Oh, I can't wait. Conspiracy time. <laughs> okay, so the first non-science is uh, ley lines. Are you familiar with ley lines? No. The silliest thing on the planet. <laughs> Literally on the planet. So ley lines are defined as... Okay, the term ley lines was coined by this man named Alfred Watkins, who wrote a book called The Old Straight Track, which was published in 1925. And in it, he introduced the, quote, rediscovery of a natural phenomenon that was known to ancients... And his theory was that ancient sites around Britain had actually been constructed in a given alignment across landscapes. Oh, I've actually heard this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically drawing straight lines from monument to monument. Yes. It's so weird that you can draw a straight line <laughs> from a monument to another monument it's so when it's bizarre. flat on a map. Yeah. It's so bizarre. No, but I have heard that theory. So there's a lot of people, and by a lot, I mean like seven. <laughs> <laughs> People on the internet who are like self-proclaimed dowsers, who take those dowsing the, instruments, the rods, yeah, the dowsing, dowsing rods, rods, and they like go to monuments and they like walk on the quote ley lines, and they like and then stand like, there, and yeah, they, like get like magnetic impulses they're, like, where they're, they're like crossing <gasps> weird. This is a ley oh line. Oh my gosh, this is right where Stonehenge <laughs> intersects with that wooden village. Mm-hmm. So and the ocean, <laughs> like you bitch, it's an island. It's just an island. Okay. So they say that. Ley lines align with ancient sites and are often energy channels rather than physical lines. The dowser that I was reading the website of says that Stonehenge is is positioned at the center of a hub or network of a bunch of ley lines, which makes it an energy portal. There are 14 major ley lines that converge at Stonehenge, which makes it a powerful vortex. Um, There's one woman named Romy Wyeth who demonstrated to the BBC that a line of energy can be detected at the center of Stonehenge and then again at this place called Old Serum, and then it runs through a cathedral, which is just a line. It's a straight line. (laughs) You're telling me that all three of those places (laughs) were constructed. Mm -hmm. One at the northernmost point, Mm -hmm. one at the southernmost point, Mm -hmm. and one in the middle Mm -hmm. of an imaginary line Mm -hmm. going in a random direction. Well, it's not random. It's an, it's an energy line. Oh, right, right, right. Sure. Yeah, that aligns with the magnetic forces of the Earth. Um, I feel like you doubt <laughs> the ley lines. <laughs> um, so a lot of Wiltshire's sacred sites are associated with ley lines, and those who support the theory think that they act as a focus for powerful earth energies, which is something that our ancestors knew a great deal about. Stonehenge is also supposedly connected by ley lines to the pyramids of Egypt, Machu Picchu, and Everest, among others. So, (laughs) I also found 
Listen, here's the thing. It's like I said before, like, the Mayans had calendars. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, sure. Let's just bring everybody into it. Machu Picchu. Bring everybody into it. Everest. The Nepalese. Here's the thing, though. Aztecs, it all comes down Incas, to one thing. They all did it. <laughs> they were all... They all existed. <laughs> they all Vikings. Lived. They all knew more than we do about the, the sky. Because we're just looking at our phones all day. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, according to a person named Ivan, who writes for ancientcode.com, quote, The ley lines and the electromagnetic field anomalies that are present in different geographic locations around the world do not seem something random. It is truly planned, something elaborate. Something that truly seems out of this world. Which brings us to our next theory. Ancient aliens. <gasps> Ancient astronaut theorists believe. <laughs> I literally typed that. My favorite thing. So, do you know about Was the Was Stonehenge <laughs> a landing ground for ancient UFOs? Ancient astronaut theorists say yes. They literally do say yes. Is that that. what we're talking about? Yes. (laughs) So there's a man named Eric Von Daniken. Yeah, that sounds real. He is the man responsible for the the ancient astronaut theory. For those of you with lives. That is the theory that extraterrestrial beings with superior knowledge of science and engineering came to Earth thousands of years ago, and they shared their knowledge with early Neolithic civilizations. He wrote a book called Chariot of the Gods? Yeah, I've heard of him. Mm -hmm. In that book, he suggested that the creation of Stonehenge was actually a model of our solar system as they thought it was back then, so with nine planets. I think that the reason that I know about the ley lines is because I watched an Ancient Aliens episode about this. There is one. Yeah, I think I watched it. So he thinks that Stonehenge was a model of our solar system and it served as a solar and lunar calendar. Here's the thing. That's fucking genius. Exactly. Yeah. He might be right. But for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) That's the thing is he's right for the wrong reasons. He's right for the wrong reasons. It could be. It could very easily be a solar and lunar calendar. Yeah. And it could easily be like a model of our solar system as they saw it. Yeah. But it's not because of Neolithic Britons. It's because of ancient no, Aliens. the other way around. <laughs> no! Get out of my closet. So. <laughs> Get out of my closet. He also said that the stone circle served as a landing pad for spaceships. Oh, I said that. Yeah. <laughs> you got there. I think there. somewhere deep in my memory I had blacked that out, but I remember <laughs> it now. Um, also, Wiltshire has like a history of crop circles and UFO sightings. Sure. So, whatever. But, (laughs) so he thinks that Danikin and, you know, ancient astronaut theorists suggest, suggest that what I, here's what I wrote (laughs) in all caps, were these ley lines actually ancient flight plans for our ancient alien ancestors navigating our planet? Ancient Ancient astronaut astronaut theorists theorists say say yes. yes. So that's what he thinks. 
This brings when us we to edit this. I'm just gonna cut that sound bite of them going ancient astronaut theorists. Yes. Say yes. Put it over every time, please. I'm gonna do it. So we've done um, ley lines, aliens, which brings us to my favorite theory, which has been debunked, but I had to put it in the non-science category because it's not science. So, do you know of the man Jeffrey of Monmouth? Mm-mm. Jeffrey of Monmouth wrote what is called the History of the Kings of Britain, which relates the purported history of Britain from its first settlement by Brutus to the death of Cadwallader in the 7th century. It took in Julius Caesar's invasions of Britain, two kings, Lear and Cymbeline. I know. And was one of the earliest developed narratives of King Arthur. Cool. This was widely recognized as historical fact for a long time. He wrote this whole book and he was like, this is the history of British kings. And everyone was like, great. Okay, cool. In the 12th century, this man named William of Newburgh, who was an English historian, wrote, quote, It is quite clear that everything this man wrote about Arthur and his successors, or indeed about his predecessors was made up partly by himself and partly by others. Yeah, it was just like a, a book of fiction. It was a book it was of like fiction. An early work of fiction. But he, ev- he marketed it as read fact. It, yeah, right. So he has also a story about Stonehenge. <sighs> yes. Of course he does. <sighs> and it's great. So, in the mid-5th century, hundreds of British nobles were slaughtered by the Saxons and buried on Salisbury Plain. Hoping to erect a memorial to his fallen subjects, King Aurelius Ambrosius sent an army to Ireland to retrieve a stone circle known as the Giant's Ring, which ancient giants had built from magical African bluestones. The soldiers successfully defeated the Irish but failed to move the stones, so Merlin used his sorcery to carry them across the sea and arrange them around the mass grave. And when was this debunked? 1989? <laughs> <laughs> it was debunked in... It was de- Actually, technically, it was debunked when they did the radiocarbon dating. Because... So up until that point, it was like a, the- a viable theory. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Because the radiocarbon... the Whoever M- Merlin is like the Jesus Christ version of mm-hmm. was from before... Um, Stonehenge was built. Or after. Not the same time. It was not the same time. Okay. So, for centuries... Merlin of Nazareth. Merlin of Nazareth. (laughs) (laughs) For centuries, people thought this was true. But, okay, here we go. The monument's construction predates Merlin, or at least the real-life figures who are said to have inspired him by several thousand years. So, for hundreds of years, people really thought... That the giants in Ireland built a ring of stones, and then... I buy that. Merlin... I don't buy that Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> He's not that altruistic. No. <laughs> so that's Government Stonehenge. cover-up. That was all of it? That's it. What's the answer? <laughs> Talk to Kristoff. Kristoff will know very soon, but they published their findings in, like, August. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, this year. Isn't that cool? Yes. That's why I decided to do it, because as I was doing research, I was like, maybe Stonehenge is, like, lazy. But then I found 
new stuff. This new stuff. And I was like, that's so goddamn cool. Science I also think there's something so really cool, cool to be said for what you're talking about, where it's like the um, people that were buried at Stonehenge that came from the same place as the rocks. Like, mm-hmm. that's super interesting because it's like, were they like pilgrims? Were they slaves? Mm-hmm. Were they like who? And the interesting thing about that is that, so they date back to about 3000 BC, which is when Stonehenge started to be built. That's so insane. it's like, they were like the original group of people who brought the stones over, but then it's like, what connection did these people have from Wales to Wiltshire that they were like, oh, let's bring stones down? Like, what was happening? Yeah, I'm really curious, too. Yeah, that's why it's so cool. That makes it seem, too, like it was a generation that moved there, and then it was the, their offspring that are the other bones. Like, as if people were burying generations as they passed away. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the one of the frustrating things is that they only got permission to test 25 sets of Bones. How many are there? So many. Oh, I want to know it all. There's so many. This is what you always say. We're too soft about death. Who are we offending? Let's just test them all. I think what it was is probably... Saving them for when we have better technology. Or I think they were like, we don't know if this is actually going to work. And these are like very delicate. Oh, We don't know what fair. happens to them when you're doing... Right. Strontium dating. Yeah. You know, like... For sure. They're like, let's not blow... They got to prove that they could do it. <laughs> let's not... Let's not blow it. <laughs> Stonehenge. So that's wow, Stonehenge. you did a heavy hitter. I'm proud of you. That was Isn't good. that cool? That was great. I like how at the beginning you were like mad that I did Stonehenge. Mm, curious. <laughs> and now you got some interesting science. And Merlin. Yeah, and Merlin of Nazareth. <laughs> we'll do that whole episode about him someday. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Follow us on Instagram at Mystery Team Inc. Email us at Mystery Team Incorporated at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Mystery Team Inc. One. As always, we don't know. And stay in your lane. Goodbye. Stay in your ley line, Lane. <laughs> stay in your ley line. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.